Welcome to this presentation of the First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. Luke chapter 3, and in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 859. We've got a pretty good amount of ground to cover this morning, so we're going to jump right into it. As we've seen so far in the story, uh, the stage has been set for Jesus to fulfill, or to begin, I should say, uh, his ministry as the long-awaited Messiah. And as his ministry commences in our passage this morning, Luke is going to confirm to us that Jesus is the Son of God. And we'll see the implications that that has for us as his people. And so we're in Luke chapter 3, and we're going to pick up beginning in verse 21. It says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And so last week we read about the ministry of John the Baptist as he traveled around the region of the Jordan River, preparing the way for the coming Messiah. And now as we pick the story back up in verse 21, we, we move to the point where all the people had been baptized. Now the phrase, all the people, probably isn't intended to suggest that every single person throughout the entire region got baptized. I think Luke intends for us to understand this as referring to everyone who believed John's message. Uh, they were all baptized, and now we've come to the point where John's ministry is complete. But not only that, we also see here that Jesus himself was baptized as well. And this raises an interesting question. Why does Jesus get baptized? And we saw last week that John's baptism was an expression of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But if Jesus is perfect, then what would he need to be repenting for? Well, the majority view, which I think is correct, is that Jesus' baptism is more an act of identification with those that he has come to save. And by that I mean that, that while as the Messiah, Jesus is certainly distinct from all of the rest of God's people, he is not separated from them. Right? He's distinct, but not separated. He's one of them. And so, just as last week we talked about how John's ministry took place away from the temple and apart from the sacrifices. And we saw that by that, uh, John was indicating that a new era was dawning where our relationship with God would no longer be determined by the Old Testament system. And so, as a faithful Jew, Jesus expresses his personal commitment to this new era of God's salvation by being baptized along with everyone else. At the same time, Jesus' baptism becomes much more significant when we see that what happens afterward at the end of verse 21. Luke tells us that after Jesus was baptized, he was praying. And as he was praying, Luke says that the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And so two things happen. First, the, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus visibly and in a form that looks like a dove. 
And then a voice comes from heaven that, that explains what's happening. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And so, uh, as we've seen repeatedly now, that one of the major themes of Luke is showing how the Old Testament is fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus, there are two scriptures specifically that are at play here. And the first is Psalm 2. Uh, Psalm 2, which is a passage that was read during the coronation ceremonies of Israel's kings. And specifically in verse 7 of Psalm 2, we read, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, and today I have begotten you. And so as a new king of Israel was installed, and this psalm was read, God promised to relate to him like a father would a son. But of course, Jesus is by his very nature the son of God, and so he is the ultimate fulfillment of this promise. Jesus is the king who will sit on David's throne forever according to 2 Samuel 7, 16. Then the second passage uh, is Isaiah 42, where where the prophet Isaiah speaks of the coming Messiah and who he will be. And in verse 1 of Isaiah 42, the Lord says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. And so Isaiah saw that the Messiah would be somebody upon whom the Holy Spirit of God uh, was was empowering. And and, uh, Luke tells us here that the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus fulfills that prophecy. And so by bringing these two passages together and showing us how how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of both of them, Luke reveals that Jesus' baptism becomes his commissioning ceremony. As John's ministry comes to a close, now that the way has been prepared, this is the moment Jesus' ministry begins, as he is affirmed by the Father as his unique Son, and as he is empowered by the Holy Spirit for the task at hand. But before we move on, Luke is going to pause for a moment to trace Jesus' divine lineage as we pick up again in verse 23. Luke writes, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. So as we pick up again in verse 23, Luke pauses the story for a moment, uh, to, and he tells us that when Jesus began his ministry, he was about 30 years of age, maybe give or take a little bit. And then he gives us Jesus' genealogy, beginning with Joseph, who was his legal adopted father, going all the way back to the beginning with Adam. Now, I know how much you love to listen to me pronounce Bible names. I know that you love that, but we're not going to read through the entire list this morning for time's sake. But I do want us to take a moment to think through why Luke includes this. Right? Why is it important who Jesus' great-great-great-grandfather was? Well, I think there are a number of reasons why Luke might have included this genealogy, but I want to highlight three of them. First, in this list, there are 77 names that span across the Old Testament, right, from from beginning to the end, and that shows us that the Bible is ultimately one story, 
The Bible is one story that is all connected and moving towards an ultimate destination. And so just for a few examples, we see Zerubbabel in verse 27, who was the first person to lead a group back to Israel after the exile and who rebuilt the temple. We see Boaz in, in verse 32, who rescued and redeemed Ruth and Naomi out of a life of destitution. We see Noah in verse 36, who obeyed God and built an ark before the great flood. All of these people are linked together here in this genealogy in one big story that is leading up to Jesus. Because again, Luke wants us to see how the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. Secondly, uh, this genealogy shows us how Jesus is of the lineage of David in verse 31. How he is the offspring of Abraham in verse 34 and the seed of Eve, which is implied in verse 38. In other words, he wants us to see how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises over the centuries to save his people through the descendants of these respective people, the king from David's line, the descendant of Abraham, who will bless all nations, and the seed of Eve, who will eventually defeat the serpent. But in context... I think Luke tips his hand here and and shows his most important intention by using a phrase that is never used anywhere else in the Bible. And so at the end of verse 38, you'll see uh, that he uh, takes things all the way back to to creation, and he refers to Adam as the son of God. This is the only place in the Bible where Adam is ever referred to in that way, as the son of God. Now obviously, while all the other people in this list had a human father— as you go through the list, you see them. Adam did not, right? God acted supernaturally to bring life to Adam. Does that sound familiar? It should, because we've already seen that Jesus also does not have a true human father, and God acted supernaturally to cause Mary to conceive him in her womb. Now, the whole point of a genealogy is to show how you get from point A to point B. How how did we get here? What was the the lineage? And so you may remember when we went through Nehemiah that the priests in Nehemiah's day had to prove their legitimacy by referring to their genealogies. They had to show that they were connected to the lineage of Aaron or they were no longer allowed to serve. And so by connecting Jesus here to Adam as the son of God, Luke reinforces who Jesus really is. He is uniquely, both humanly and spiritually, the Son of God. And so God has affirmed Jesus as his Son, at his baptism, and now Luke has demonstrated that Jesus is God's Son through genealogy. But now Jesus' identity is going to be tested by Satan as we move into chapter 4. And so we'll pick up again beginning in verse 1. It says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, It will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, 
and him only shall you serve. And he took him up to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And so as we move into chapter 4, we get back to the story and see that Jesus, now full of the Holy Spirit, returns. He goes back from the region of the Jordan River where he was baptized. And then Luke tells us that he was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And so before Jesus gets back home, the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness, where he spends 40 days being tempted by the devil. We see in verse 2 that during this time, Jesus didn't eat anything. And so Luke's statement uh, at the end of, of, of the sentence that Jesus was hungry is probably a huge understatement. Not only that, but, but the effects of going this long without food would probably indicate that Jesus is potentially physically, mentally, and perhaps even spiritually vulnerable at this point. And going 40 days without food is approaching the edge of human capacity. And so beginning in verse 3, Satan tries to pounce and take advantage of the situation. And so first he tells Jesus, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, the nuance of Satan's statement here is not so much one of doubt, as if Jesus has to prove that he really is God's son, as much as it is one of logical consequence. And by that, I mean, since you are the son of God, why don't you just fill in the blank? And in this particular case, with Jesus being hungry, Satan tempts him to turn a stone into bread. And so the argument is, hey, you are the son of God. You've got no business being hungry if you don't want to be. So why don't you just command this stone to become bread and eat? This This is the temptation that Satan puts to Jesus. And certainly, Jesus is capable of doing exactly that. But he has been led out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, which means that he is, right now, exactly where God wants him to be. And yet, up till now, God has not provided him with food, which is what brings us to this crisis point. The question is, will Jesus trust the Father to provide for him, or will he try to cheat by providing for his own needs outside of God's provision? And so in the same way, we might find ourselves dissatisfied with how God has provided for us financially, and so we may try to take matters into our own hands by cutting corners at work or by doing something immoral in order to make more money. Or we might be dissatisfied with how he has provided for us relationally and and compromised by pursuing an inappropriate relationship. In those moments, Satan's message to us is exactly the same as it is to Jesus here. Stop waiting on God and take matters into your own hands. Now, in response, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, where Moses commands the nation of Israel, "...man shall not live by bread alone." But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, during the Exodus, as God led his people in the wilderness for 40 years, which there's a connection here, he fed them with manna. He fed them with manna on his timetable and in his ways to teach them 
to depend on him, that he would provide for them, and also so that they would learn that obedience to him was just as important as physical food. And so as Jesus is hungry at this moment in the wilderness under the direction of his father, he's not going to take matters into his own hands as the Israelites so often tried to do. He is going to resist temptation, and he waits for his father to provide for him. So next, in verse 5, Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and he offers to turn them over to him for, for Jesus to rule if he will worship him in exchange. Now, the issue here is slightly different. You see, Jesus is already going to inherit the kingdoms of the earth, right? This, this is Jesus' destiny. And, and that same Psalm 2 that we just talked about, that, that God applies to Jesus at his baptism, declaring him to be his son, he says in verse 8, "'Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession.'" And so again, this is Jesus' destiny. One day every nation, tribe, and tongue will bow at his name and declare him to be Lord. But that time isn't just yet. First, as we saw in Philippians last year, Jesus has to humble himself, endure the cross, and suffer for his people. And then God will establish him as King of kings and Lord of lords. And so here in essence... Satan is offering Jesus a shortcut to glory. He says, you don't have to wait for this, and you certainly don't have to endure everything that the Father would have you do to get there. So you don't have to keep enduring the difficulties of life in this world. You don't have to worry about the pain of crucifixion or the weight of bearing the sin of humanity on your own shoulders. He says, I'll give all of this to you. It can all be yours. If you will, in exchange for, for your allegiance to me. And in response, Jesus reminds Satan that Deuteronomy 6 13 through 15 says, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Right, so, plain and simple, there is only one God, and only he is worthy of our worship. While the nation of Israel was constantly prone to idolatry, consistently looking to false gods to give them what only the Lord could truly provide, Jesus resists temptation, and he remains faithful to God. Then finally, in verse 9, Satan takes Jesus to the highest point of the temple in Jerusalem. And he tells him, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. And you'll notice that this time, Satan quotes Scripture too. In, in Psalm 91, 11 and 12, the psalmist speaks of God's protection for his people. And he says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Satan's logic is that if that's true for God's people in general, how much more so will it be for the Messiah, the true Son of God? And so, uh, since you're the Son of God, why not take a jump and see how God cares for you? Much like it's, it's cool and fun for uh, famous people to ride around in limousines and to eat at fancy restaurants. Satan tempts Jesus to, to jump off the temple just to experience the thrill of, a, of an angelic escort back to safety. And so, this is a reminder that Satan knows what the Bible says. And he loves to try to deceive people by taking it out of its context, twisting its meaning, and misapplying it. 
But fortunately, Jesus isn't fooled. He knows that just because you could do something doesn't necessarily mean that you should do something. And so in response, he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 16, which says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So in context, this is a a command that Moses gave to the Israelites who had God's word. They knew his, his warnings and they knew his promises. And so testing God can go one of two different ways. It can intentionally sin to see, to test, if God will really do what he says he will do about it. Or on the other hand, it can try to force God's hand to do what he's promised to do, but on our timetable and in the ways that we want him to. So no doubt, if Jesus had fallen, God would have rescued him. But Jesus refuses the temptation to test, or to test him. And so Satan strikes out, or Jesus goes three for three, whichever way you want to look at it. Luke tells us in verse 13 that when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And so this doesn't mean that Jesus had never been tempted in his life up till this point. Uh, And it certainly doesn't imply, we see that it doesn't imply, that he's not going to be tempted again after this point, because we we see that Satan is looking for an opportune time in the future. But this particular episode is a specific, intense battle with Satan that that Jesus wins. He defeats Satan in this 40 days of temptation. Now, much has been made about Jesus' example here and the implications that it has for how we should fight temptation in our own lives. And certainly it has value for that. Uh, We should all continually seek to grow in our knowledge of God's Word and our commitment to obeying it in all things. But if we stop there, then I'm afraid we miss the actual point of the story. You see, Luke hasn't included this primarily to show us how we are to overcome temptation. He's included this story for us to see that Jesus did overcome temptation. And in so doing, he proved himself to be the perfectly obedient son of God. The story isn't about us and how we need to do what we need to do. It's about Jesus and what he has done for us. Once again, Luke is showing us that Jesus is God's son. And so in our passage this morning, through God's affirmation at his baptism, through genealogical proof, and through his obedience under temptation, Jesus is demonstrated to be the Son of God. And as I mentioned back at the beginning, this reality has significant implications for us today. As as we've seen here in the passage, Luke makes a connection between Adam and Jesus. But he also makes a major distinction which is that whereas Adam fell when he was tempted by Satan, Jesus triumphed. And he triumphed in the midst of much more difficult circumstances. Adam was tempted in the Garden of Eden, surrounded by the evidence of God's perfect and and beautiful creation. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, which is an exact picture of, of God's creation ruined by the effects of sin. Adam sinned, being surrounded by everything he could have ever possibly wanted and more. Jesus triumphed over temptation after 40 days of fasting, being surrounded by absolute barrenness. Adam had every reason not to sin. Jesus had every reason to compromise. 
But while Adam disobeyed God and threw the world into sin and death, Jesus obeyed God perfectly and will now redeem the world from sin and death. And so theologically speaking, Jesus stands as a second Adam, a second Adam through whom God is recreating humanity. And so if Adam was the first person in God's original creation, Jesus is the first person of God's new creation. Jesus is a new Adam. And so listen to how Paul fleshes out the implications of Adam's failure and Jesus' obedience in Romans chapter 5. Referring to salvation, he says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God. And the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And here Paul is explaining how we, as sinners, can be reconciled to a perfect and holy God. And the answer is that when we repent of our sin and place our trust in what Jesus has done to save us, God takes Jesus' perfect obedience, which he accomplished in this passage, and he credits it, he applies it to us as a gift. While Adam's sin singularly threw the whole world into enmity with God, Jesus' obedience will singularly redeem all of those who will place their faith in him. In his life, Jesus resisted temptation, perfectly obeying God in every way. And that qualified him to serve as a perfect sacrifice on our behalf. And on the cross, Jesus took our sin, and by faith we are given his righteousness in exchange so that we can be in a right relationship with God. And just as we sang earlier, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. And in this way, Paul is showing that Jesus is the true and better Adam who has come to save God's people from sin and death. And now, over the rest of the story, we're going to see how the Spirit-empowered, perfectly obedient Son of God accomplishes that mission. So this morning, may we trust in the Son of God, and live lives that honor and glorify Him for the salvation that He has given to us. Let's pray together.